0: Again, if you would, please hear and Sovereign Grace at home, in your living rooms, break open your Bible. The book of Philippians, our text this morning will be Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this wonderful gift grace of your presence by the spirit here in this room I pray that that be true with members of this church sitting alone or with others at home and I beg that you allow us to continue to worship over your word may your word penetrate us as you see fit to the glory of your holy name amen there are some passages in scripture that must be grasped be understood by the emotions as well as the head. For instance, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac because of his faith and his obedience in God, you cannot grasp or understand that passage unless you relate to that as as a parent to a child and you feel it. This morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12, all the way to 18. We'll cover the second half more in depthly next week, God willing. But, But what I'm going to read here in a few minutes as a whole is like that. You've got to feel this. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Philippian church. They have not seen Paul in four years. Over that period of time, rumors have abounded. People would come through town and they would hear of differing circumstances and trials that Paul had been going through and it has caused them deep concern about how they could help him and reach out to him and pray for him. And then finally, they find out Paul is no longer imprisoned in Caesarea over close to the Jewish homeland, but now he's arrived and he's been in Rome for way over a year. And so they raise an offering, a lot of money, and then they send it to Paul in Rome by one of their own members, Epaphroditus, and others. It takes a while to travel. There's no trains and airplanes. and There's ships and boats and walking. Epaphroditus finally arrived there. So for the Philippian church, another month, month and a half has elapsed. And then another month and another month. And then some messengers come from Rome and they tell them because you know on business or whatever they're doing. And they say, we got some bad news. Epaphroditus made it. But when we left, he's still very sick. I'm not sure if he's going to make it. And those same messengers also related to the church in Philippi, Paul's circumstances there in Rome and what he's been going through. And they, they've told him, yes, there's been some bad things. And they told the Philippian church about the division that was within the church in Rome over Paul. Some really disliked him. They were not happy he was in prison in their city, the capital of the Roman Empire. Others loved him. The Philippine church had no way of knowing if Paul was still alive, even by the time they get that message, whether his trial happened, how did it go, nor the state of Epaphroditus. Another month goes by. Epaphroditus arrives. Word starts to spread through the church. He is in town and he's got a letter for us from Paul. And that night, the church gathered to hear the reading of that letter. And as it's read publicly and out loud by one of them... Quickly, they breeze through those first 11 verses as we have not breezed through, but slowly went through the last few weeks. And they arrive at verse 12, where Paul now tells them of his situation. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. That my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, they preach Christ from envy and rivalry with me, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? only that in every way, whether in pretense and bad motives or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. So they got the news. The rumors they have been hearing about Paul are true. Many bad things have happened to him. He's still in prison. His future is still uncertain. There were a number of people within the church of Christ in Rome who had bad motives and intentions towards Paul. They're filled with jealousy and rivalry envy to the point that they're trying to cause Paul problems even in the way they would preach the gospel but something else was true that Paul related to the Philippians and that was this these things that I have been through have really served to spread gospel. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And so from the flow of thought, we can read between those lines. It reveals to us that Paul clearly has some critics within the church in Rome They thought their perspective was that Paul, he had brought shame on the church. Shame on the gospel by getting himself arrested. His case still pending before Caesar, it could bring Christianity into ill repute. You can almost hear many of the believers in their their home groups meeting throughout the city of Rome, particularly those who were of Paul's critics, murmuring to one another. He's constantly rushing into situations that a, a wiser and a more cautious person would not do. Why did he have to go to Jerusalem in the first place? We heard rumors that Christians in every city were begging him not to go to Jerusalem. But he went anyway. Did he not know how much they hated his guts and how dangerous that would be in our perspective and to the gospel? Is he an idiot? He went anyway. Now he makes all of us look like fools. He's sitting imprisoned, and the whole city knows this, this great Christian leader is going to go on trial. We all look like outlaws and aliens now. Something like that is the backdrop of verses 15 to 18. But with one skillful sentence, Paul shifts the Philippians. Legitimate concern for him. They love Paul. He planted them. And Paul shifts their concern to the great sovereign purpose of the gospel. Saying essentially, the gospel is central. Not me. Paul. Verse 12. I want you to know Get it, guys and gals. Get it, brothers and sisters. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay. That's related to every one of us. Oh, there's this practical application what I mean is this. The things that have happened to Paul over the previous years and are still happening while he's incarcerated in Rome, those are not things that Paul planned for his life. Suffering came. Plans were erased in life. Folded in a different way. Can you relate? Have you lived long enough? And long enough as a Christian to relate to that? Paul was the great missionary to the Gentiles. He, he spent years going through province after province after province through the Roman Empire, from Galatia and through Syria and through Greece, Achaia, Asia, Macedonia, Crete. That's what he's doing. And then he had a plan. Okay, his plan was to go to Jerusalem to deliver the offering, to have really good hopes of what might happen there. And then from Jerusalem, his plan was to finally make it to Rome where the church had already been planted so that he can bear some fruit there with those Christians and stay for numbers of months. And then be helped by them financially on his way for his plan to go far west. To Spain and preach the gospel. That was his plan. But that's not quite how it happened. He did go to Jerusalem and he was attacked by a mob in the temple grounds and beaten bloody and almost to death, and then spent two years incarcerated under Roman authority in the city of Caesarea. Finally appealed to Caesar, so they got to send him to Rome to have his trial before Caesar, because he is a Roman citizen. And even on the way there, he goes through the horrific, scary experience of the shipwreck on the little island. He finally arrives in Rome. By the writing of this letter, he's now been in Rome for almost two years, still awaiting trial, not knowing whether he will live or die. He has no surety, And so Paul looks back at all of these happenings and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Think about that. All the frustration, all the delays, the physical suffering. Christians attacking him. And yet this is overshadowed by the fact that in Paul's mindset, God is suffering and I can see the fruit. It is served to advance the gospel he knew it was no accident there is a theology of suffering here there are different aspects of the theology of suffering for Christians in the New Testament so I want to do I want to digress just for a second and show you that one of the purposes for Christian suffering Is for their own growth. Correction. This, no, no, we can say, that's not Paul's suffering that he's laying out here. Though he experienced that kind of suffering. Remember 2 Corinthians? We got to the place where we despaired of life itself. But this happened to us in order that, and that's not Satan's purpose. It's God's purpose in order that we may learn not to trust in ourselves, but in Him who raises the dead. And you can see that theology of suffering, that is God's sovereign hand of growing you, correcting you, really laid out, if you'll turn there for a second, Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 5 the writer says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he goes on to quote Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The writer goes on Christian, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons in their suffering, which is throughout the book of Hebrews. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They are earthly fathers Disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God our Father disciplines us for our good. That we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been Trained by it. So, some suffering for the Christian, its purpose is instruction, discipline. It's intended to mold us into the image of Christ, to wean us away from love of the world, to deepen our relationship and trust in God. Many of you just look back on your own Christian life. Look back to experiences of some deep trials. Pain. You want to go go do that again? No. Don't. But now, because you have 20-20 hindsight, there's a party that says, I'm so happy in the long run I did go through that. Because of the growth in you. The lessons taught. But yeah, you don't, yeah, you hate the suffering for its own sake. But oh, what he did in changing you to love him more. To grasp reality and life better. To become more mature. Because of that painful relationship. That painful experience. Physical, emotional. a clear theology of suffering laid out in the New Testament. But that was not Paul's suffering in this passage. Paul's here was a participation in suffering in order that the gospel might spread to others. And then Paul gives two examples in our text. Verse 13 is the first example. Verse 14 is the second. So let's look at them. First, verse 13. But let's pick up with verse 12 and let it flow into it. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that, here it is. What, Paul, what are you saying? It has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Through imprisonment, a stunning witness for Christ spread through the whole Imperial Guard. Now, literally in the Greek, it's through the hall. The it's got the word hall there and the word praetorium. Now, the praetorium, the, the guard, does not refer to a, a building here in the first century. It refers to people. It refers to the official Roman guards of the emperor Nero who were responsible. They were over. Like the county sheriff of L.A., they're over the county jail. They were over all the federal imperial prisoners who were waiting trial. That's their job. There's about 9,000 of them at that time in the city of Rome. Paul, he's always attended by at least one of these guards Remember, when he got to Rome and evidently ever since for the last two years in Rome, he's had freedom. He's had the freedom to to rent his own apartment, to have people come and go where he would preach and he would teach. He had visitors all the time. But 24-7, there was a Roman guard attached to him. So how In the world did the whole guard thousands of them come to know who Paul was (laughs) and that this guy is on trial for a message this Christianity thing it happened because he was an extraordinary prisoner I mean his witness his Damascus Road experience the testimony of, of the other apostles and many other disciples of Jesus of, of his resurrection. This guy had a fascinating narrative. And so, guard after guard would hear him. Remember, he taught. Guards are, okay, I got the duty next eight hours. Oh, look, he's got about 30 people jamming in here today, and he's going to be teaching through Moses. And there goes the gospel again. And you can just see Paul after they all leave. Hey, Jim. Roman soldier? What do you think about that? This is what's happening evidently in Rome. And these soldiers are going back to the barracks after their shifts, and you've got to get a load of this dude. It's a it trip. He's actually a really cool guy. He's not like most of these prisoners. He is not a hardened criminal. He's not even a, a blue, a blue, I mean a white-collar swindler type. He's not constantly going about trying to say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. He's not, he's not concerned with currying favor with Nero and his court. All he does day and night is keep talking about this Jew. Named Jesus, who was crucified 30 years ago on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And if this, pri- if this prisoner is to be believed, he says that Jew was raised from the dead after crucifixion. Three days later, and he is alive today. Ascended to the one holy, true God. And he says that the entire world, every one of us soldiers, every human being ever will stand before that man Jesus and be judged eternally. And he says, the only way, the only way to escape the holy wrath of God justly against us. The only way to to have an afterlife in bodily resurrection, in joy forever, to be in the good graces of this God, is that you must believe in His Son. This is what this guy preaches night and day. Clearly some of them believed or converted to Christ. Others weren't, but it was still a fascinating message you got to go hear the story. See if you can get this shift. I mean, every day there's at least at least three if you only got one guard attached to them because you got first watch, second watch, third watch as they're changing shifts, going to Paul's apartment. He's a really good guy. He's different than most of these scumbags we have to deal with. Okay, That's in the background. Paul says Philippians... I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Think about the implications of that for your own life. None of that was planned by Paul, suffering came. He's chained to his soldier night and day. But in Paul's gospel theology come the words but God but God was up to something. And now I got to see it. The whole image. has had the gospel preached to it. Life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. God's sovereignty is how your life unfolds while you're making other plans, which you ought to make with wisdom. And therefore, whatever circumstances you find yourself in today, trust him. Trust him today. You don't have to have faith for tomorrow, but today. And don't let depression and discouragement overtake you. These circumstances have been given by God. And they can be used by Him. Like for Paul. One soldier at a time. That's Paul's first example of what he means by, in all of my suffering and these happenings, I'm going to tell you what, the gospel is spreading. And then he gives us his second example of the gospel spreading. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, meaning most of the Christians there in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's suffering by being incarcerated advances the gospel by making the many, many, many of the Christians more bold to risk their reputations. they reasoned as they watched that Paul's loss of freedom being incarcerated and awaiting trial by the civil government it has caused the spread of the gospel as some of these soldiers have come into the community you know what? what? where we have been timid, we could risk shame and punishment or incarceration. We can just go ahead like Paul and trust the Lord. So the Holy Spirit who lived in Paul lived in them and in us. And it caused them to see Paul's Persecution, circumstances, his imprisonment, and the spirit in Paul's example put a backbone into their otherwise timid, fearful Christian souls. That's what happened, and church history has worked that way. Just remember the example that those those five. Wheaton College graduates set in the 1950s by being speared to death. Trying to reach, with the gospel, the Akka Indians. You have to read a book you can just go see the movie. What is it, The Tip? The The End of the Spear. The result of that was two decades of Wheaton graduates flooding the mission field. Because they reasoned like the the Roman Christians here. That those five deaths, they risked their lives with families that they left behind. You know what? Gospel is good. We can risk our necks in preaching the Word of God in dangerous circumstances. More fearlessly. So what about... The crisis of the gospel witness, which is becoming in many Christians' minds in America more of a crisis of the witness of Christ today. Okay, I'm going to go and say something, but I want to make sure I'm heard. The key word in everything I am going to say here is conscience. We are instructed in the New Testament by Paul on a few different occasions. the Corinthians in Romans. That as Christians, when you come to a conviction with your conscience and wanting to walk with Christ... And you got other Christians who disagree with you and they're not there. Be careful of being judgmental. That's the negative way to say it. Toward them. So where, for instance, there are many, many Christians throughout this land. Most of us, when we're told millions of people are going to die. If you keep having church, here's the numbers, and the hospitals will be overrun. Most of us said, even if you were one, that even said I doubt it, or others, maybe so, what do I know? We wanted to love our neighbors. Yeah, that would be a bad thing. So we willingly went to doing live Facebook with essential people in the room to do it because we don't want to kill people. Now, but at the same time you bring in Romans 13, huge passage. God sets up civil government for a good purpose. Christians are called to obey civil government. Most always. There are many Christians who think, "What? that's still here? If the government says do not meet its churches, my conscience says we shouldn't do that. And those Christians at this moment in history should be honored and respected. Don't become a conscience for them. Okay, are you hearing me? Okay, now that I've said that, I'm going to say this again. And then explain what I mean for other Christians. What about the crisis that gospel witness is in today? And what I mean is this What if, so you gotta hear the way I'm saying, what if you have come to a place you have no fear of any significant danger? Just look, life is dangerous, driving a car is dangerous, there's always danger. Okay? But if you jump out of an, an airplane with a parachute, it's more dangerous than just flying, but there's danger in flying. But it's not significant enough to stop flying. What if you have come to a place in your understanding in mind that you have no fear of dying from the COVID virus? What if because you read and you pay attention to statistics, your Christian conscience has become convinced that you have a much greater chance of dying in a car accident than you do of dying of the COVID virus? Beyond that, what if you have become convinced that you have a much greater chance of killing another person with your car accidentally in an accident than you do of killing another person by passing along the COVID virus because you're an adult. Because you know that you think adult-like on whom to be around and whom not to be around in order not to endanger the small percentage of the really vulnerable. And like the Philippians, with all of that, You think that your witness for Jesus and the gathering of the saints to worship is more important than anything. It is more vital than anything else in the world. And these factors in you put together make you ready to risk. Risk worshiping Jesus biblically together in the same room with your local church body. What if you're led? What if, not to say you are, but what if you're led to the conviction because your conscience realizes that you now at this point, five months in, might be testifying, might be testifying falsely? To fellow members in the body of Christ, to unbelievers in your family, to your culture, you might be testifying falsely that health, that physical health above everything is much more important than Christ and the body of Christ, the church, the gathering, which that's what it means. Much more, it's much more important than the gospel that saves sinners from the second death. And what if you're convinced that the authorities that be who think they have the right to tell Christians whether they can practice their religion or not against the second amendment or first amendment of the constitution What if those authorities, those civil authorities that that, that, that believe they can tell the church if, when, or how, or where they can gather and worship God? What if you were convinced also that they're basing this now clearly on fear-mongering that the science doesn't support. Okay. That brings us back to the text. Now, I'm just saying, if, and there are many Christians who are coming to this, and what one ought to hope on any sides of this stuff, that you don't come there in an unbiblical and unreasonable manner. Okay. But what if, what if your conscience has come to that place? But now, you find that you fear man. And you fear culture. And you fear what many family members, neighbors, Facebook, you fear what the culture, and many will say because you understand that they have been instructed to think that you are going to go kill other people just because you want to worship Jesus with your local church body. The early church was accused in the first couple centuries, here and there, rumors were about, they were accused of cannibalism because they met secretly to eat the body and the blood did they cower because of persecution and lies and stop obeying the scripture that says don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together in order to sing, in order to preach, in order to take holy communion, in order to hang out and get in one another's lives and pray for one another in fellowship? No. So here's my message to this text. If, If that's you on that level or any other conscience level, when you find yourself in a place like that where your conscience says, yes, but fear rises up and says no. Remember the confidence the Christians found in Paul's example. And most of the Christians here in Rome... Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul risked to speak, risked to act in order to be faithful to the gospel in his conscience. He risked imprisonment by the civil government, and maybe, by the time of the writing this letter, maybe having his head chopped off in a legal execution. The bulk of the first three centuries of the Christian church lived under terrible. Threats sporadically, yes, but the threats were always there. They lived under terrible threats from civil governments. Stephen Neal writes in his book, History of Christian Missions, quote: Undoubtedly, Christians under the Roman Empire had no legal right to existence. And were liable to the utmost stringency of the law. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life might. There's risk always in this present world of being a Christian. It was always there for centuries in the Roman Empire until the 300s. It's there right now really strong in China for believers. It's right there really strong now in Iran and North Korea. And it was for decades on end in the 20th century behind the Iron Curtain of Communist totalitarianism. Illegal to meet as Christians. And so they had to do it underground. So, hear this sentence clearly. And not just concerning this issue, any issue. Risk is right if the gospel and your conscience, your conscience with the gospel, comes to a Conviction of the heart and of the mind that you should act or not act a particular way. Risk is right. It's not right because God promises you that you won't be thrown into prison or shamed by others. John the Baptist, he risked calling Herod publicly an adulterer. And he got his head cut off for it. And Jesus praised him. Paul, he risked many fellow Christians who loved him said, Paul, don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. He says, I have to. If need be, I'm willing to even die. He risked, he went to Jerusalem, his reward was being beaten almost to death. And now, at the writing of this letter, since that risk, it has been now four years in incarceration. So, what about about us as Christians today in America? Are we gripped with fear fear of risking our reputation for preaching the clear gospel? Clear gospel. Not the watered down, evangelical, seeker sensitive gospel. Clarity for souls. Are we willing to risk preaching the clear exclusivity of Christ? That every human being is doomed to hell. Justly by a holy God, unless they come to faith in Christ. That's an extremely unpopular message, much more today than it was 20 years ago in this country. Are you willing to stand on clear biblical teaching on human sexuality in the midst of this massive cultural state educational system sexual revolution where you will be shamed people want to know who are non-christians are you a christian christian who really believes that old stuff in the bible that homosexual sex is sinful that god only created two sexes Male and female, and it's determined by your biology. They want to, you really believe that? Then you are, by definition, immediately, for many, and it will just only accelerate. You're a hate filled human being. Even though you know how much you love heterosexual or homosexual persons, you want to reach them with the gospel. And you don't think you're any better because you understand the gospel. It's pure grace and mercy that you even came to faith in Christ, but you're willing to risk the shame. The power to risk that Paul always found in it, that these Christians in Rome are finding, is trusting in Christ, trusting the message, the gospel, the promise that. Unending everlasting joy is still future awaiting you in the resurrection if you belong to Him. And that pie in the sky is the power to risk. That power causes the believer to be more concerned about faithfulness. To Christ than cowering in the face of suffering because of Christ. It says, if you shame me because of my love for and my walk with Christ, then I embrace it. And most of the brothers haven't become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, my shame. They are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's as if those Roman Christians had just read Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Verse 40, when they had called the apostles... The legal religious government in Jerusalem under Rome's authority. They beat them. That's humiliating. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame, dishonor for the name of Christ. And so every day in the temple, publicly in the temple, And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, here at Sovereign Grace, your church everywhere and attend thousands of assemblies. Even this morning, doing what we're doing, going Facebook Live with most members at home. Give your your church universal. Give the leaders of your churches wisdom. Give us, when conscience beckons, courage, fear, always stand for the truth of the gospel for the value and the preciousness of Christ may we even who differ on the shutdown issue may we be those who like Paul on either side saying Father I always want whether in life or death or shame or persecution or goodwill, to have Christ honored in my body. Draw all of us saints this way to you, to the glory of your holy name.